I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... The cabinet is a really great way to measure the evolution and expansion of the American state, but also who counts as an American citizen when women are included as cabinet secretaries, when people of color, people of different religion. That tends to go in March step with the expansion of suffrage and civil rights. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I am your host, Mark Walsh. This time we have a great guest with some historical stuff you're going to love hearing. It's Lindsay Chervinsky. She just wrote a book called The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Guess what? There's nothing in the Constitution that says a president has to have a cabinet. So, of course, George Washington created one. It's grown over the years, it's been bigger, smaller, different focuses. Lindsay details with us what the cabinet was, where it's going, and what it does. Yeah, there have been some changes all right, but thank God that Washington gave some people with good advice for him, and since then, many presidents have had good advice from their cabinet as well. Here's our conversation. The Cabinet. It just came out in paperback recently, so we're excited to have her with us. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me here. It's great to be here. So the creation of an American institution, that's a heck of a subhead. But as I saw, <laughs> as I saw in some of the some of the blurbs and some of the description of the book, Washington didn't even George President Washington did not even start the cabinet until a year or two into his administration. Who was giving advice to him beforehand? What what was going on there? Yeah, that's a great place to start. And thank you so much for flagging that because the cabinet was by no means preordained from the very beginning. He did not go into the presidency expecting to create this institution because the Constitution does not say cabinet. The word still isn't in there. Right. So the delegates to the Constitutional Convention understood, as you pointed out, that advice was required. You had to have someone helping you. And they really expected two things. They expected that the Senate would be a council of foreign affairs which makes a little bit more sense when the Senate was only 22 people in the fall of 1789. And they expected that the secretaries of the executive departments would provide written consultation. And that written piece was really important because they wanted to make sure there was a paper trail about who said what and who was advocating which policy so that there would be transparency and responsibility. Who knew? Right? Who knew that yeah. papers would be important? So the original members of the cabinet, I guess there were four. What were some of the areas? There were four. So there was the Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of War, Henry Knox, Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, and Attorney General Edmund Randolph. Now, there wasn't a Department of Justice, but there was an Attorney General. Wow. And then from that moment uh, till today, it's obviously grown I used to work for the Small Business Administration for the Obama administration, and the SBA administrator was included in the cabinet, I think, off and on under Clinton and W and stuff. Has there been, I mean, since the original four, has there been some churn, so to speak, in members of the cabinet? Absolutely. So obviously the cabinet looks much bigger today than it did in 1791 when Washington had his very first meeting. There are now 15 department heads that are in the cabinet. And then there are a number of cabinet level positions, as you mentioned. Sometimes the CIA director is cabinet level. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes we have climate envoys or climate czars. It really just depends on the president's preference about how many people technically get that designation. So 
I'm sure different presidents over time, and certainly the last few administrations probably have had very differing views on what it means to be transparent and what that advice typically entails. What are some ways, I guess, let's start with Washington. What, what the heck, we're, we're, we're going there. What are some of the records you've, as a historian, as a, an historian seen of what kind of transparent feedback or written documents, so to speak, <laughs> he was getting from that original team? Yeah, so what he would usually do is if he had a question about a, a matter pertaining to one department, he would send them a letter, that particular secretary, have them bring some documentation, and they would discuss what to do with it, how to go about moving forward. Now, if there was a big issue, like, say, for example, the United States relationship with France, Great Britain, and Spain, which was the topic of the first cabinet meeting, obviously that's going to touch on a lot of different departments because you have trade, you have diplomacy, you have warfare if things go badly. So he would bring together the cabinet. He usually would send them a list of questions ahead of time to sort of serve as the meeting agenda and to get the juices flowing. And then if they disagreed, he would ask for written opinions. And those written opinions allowed him to think through the issue carefully, study all the details and make sure he has all of the information, not unlike, you know, the intelligence reports presidents get today. Washington wanted to make sure he was well informed before making a good choice. But those written opinions also served as a really helpful political cover if he needed it. He did have in writing what people had said. And he didn't regularly publish those things, but thankfully he was very attentive to keeping all of his presidential documents. So we do actually have a record of them. We're talking with Lindsay Chervinsky. Lindsay is the author of a book called The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Just came out in paper book, a very exciting topic and one that seems more timely now than ever before. So when did the idea of nominating cabinet secretaries and that process of them being voted upon Did that take shape right after President Washington, or is this a more recent phenomenon? Yeah, it's a great question. So the Constitution does mention department secretaries, but it doesn't specify how many or what they're supposed to do or what that process is. So the very first Congress in the summer of 1789 took up this task to try and figure out what the executive branch should actually look like. They created those three departments, state, war, and treasury, and they created the position of the attorney general, and they debated how those people should be selected. They decided that the president should appoint advisors that he wanted to work with because it helps if you actually like the people you're supposed to talk to. You would think. You would think. Um, But they wanted to make sure that the Senate had approval because these were the people that are supposed to be giving the president advice. So you want them to be responsible and experienced and knowledgeable, again, in theory. Uh, But then they had this very extensive debate about the removal process. Ah. And so they decided ultimately that the president can remove department secretaries without Senate confirmation because they didn't want people to be held in a position for political reasons, even if that relationship with the president wasn't going well. Mm -hmm. But again, all of those debates took place after the Constitution was already ratified, after Washington was already in office. So it was very much an evolving process and really kind of evolved in an organic way. So he was number one, and now we're uh, at, I guess, 45, right? I'm sorry, 46. And are there presidents who were kind of keystone in both expanding or altering the role of a cabinet or shrinking it or changing how they were nominated and competency and stuff like that? What are some of the keystone people you might name in that, in that process? 
Yeah, there are some really important keystones. So one, I think, would be Andrew Jackson. He had a really he had a catastrophically terrible cabinet. I am shocked and saddened. <laughs> uh, for those listening, that was sarcasm. Go ahead. <laughs> He uh, ended up having this social scandal with his cabinet in which he demanded that they socialize with the wives of one of the other cabinet secretaries. And they didn't want to. And so he didn't meet with the cabinet for a full year. Wow. He didn't talk to them. So that kind of is a low point of cabinet negotiations and deliberations, but a fun one nonetheless. Uh, Lincoln is, of course, a very important touchstone because he was perhaps the least experienced and least knowledgeable of his cabinet secretaries, and yet he was president and managed through really incredible political genius to bring together the group at, you know, sort of the ultimate crisis moment in U.S. history. Hence the book Band of Rivals or the the, the element of that idea, Band of Rivals, that he brought in Seward and other people uh, that he team actually— of, Team of Rivals. But team yes. of Rivals. Just yes. testing you. Yes. But he, <laughs> but he brought in people that he had been competitive with, right? Yes. To, and that was pretty standard practice. It was normal for people to bring in their political rivals. But what made Lincoln so remarkable was that, as I said, he was the least known and least experienced and was in the most important position. Wow. So that's a, an important moment. There is a big expansion of cabinet uh, authority, number of cabinet positions during FDR, of course, which makes sense. There's the New Deal state. There are a bunch of new departments. Towards the end of his presidency, there's a reshuffling of the what now became the Defense Department that had previously been War and Navy. So now we have some some new ones there. That was a, a big moment. And then in the 1960s, with the evolution of civil rights and some additional departments like the Department of Housing and Urban Development under Johnson, that's another big moment. So there's an example. My next question, I guess, is the the evolution of what it means to be an American citizen and our society in general and probably the kind of the the focus of the president may well, in some cases, almost create a new a, a, a new slot. HUD is one example have there been – I'm asking questions I have an opinion on, so I'll shut the hell up. But I mean, there's, there have been some, misste- I would argue, missteps where they've created something that sort of didn't actually address the issue or problem it was, fa- it was, it was aimed at and has migrated as well. Is HUD an example or are others I'm not thinking of? There Is are, that unfair? No, there are a bunch of examples. So there are actually two elements to that question I would love to dig into. The first is that you're right. The cabinet is a really great way to measure – the evolution and expansion of the American state, but also who counts as an American citizen. So when women are included as cabinet secretaries, when people of color, people of different religions, that tends to go in march step with the expansion of suffrage and civil rights. So it's a really great way to (laughs) measure how we're doing as a society in terms of diversity. The second piece is Governing happens in real time. We often don't know what's coming down the road, and we do the best that we can to respond to crises and challenges, but it requires flexibility and a responsiveness. So often the Congress or the federal government will create a new department and then figure out how it needs to be tweaked, how things need to change to address whatever new circumstances come up. The Department of Defense is a great example. It makes sense to have one person overseeing a lot of the different elements of national security. Right. I I would argue that one example of a department that maybe is due for a little bit of that tweaking is the Department of Homeland Security. Usually those those sort of changes and edits and revisions take place after a couple of decades. That department has now been present for a couple of decades. 
And maybe some things didn't work quite as well as we thought or things are working better than we thought. And it's time to have a little bit of a revisit. But also, haven't they sort of created sidebar elements of like the Council of Economic Advisors and National Security Answer? Those are not cabinet positions, correct? But they're clearly a source of advice to the executive branch. Yeah, this question gets at the complicated and often contradictory responsibilities of a cabinet secretary. There you go. They are both supposed to be bureaucratic managers and experts in their field and advisors to the president. Those skills don't always overlap in a very clean way. And so often someone could be, for example, a great secretary of labor, but the president doesn't necessarily have a good relationship with that person, Mm -hmm. either because he or she doesn't like them or maybe they just don't know each other all that well. So we have seen the rise of things like the National Security Council and other advisors where the president will often pull together the people that he and hopefully someday she wants to hear from in groups that maybe make sense to be, you know, working committees on a certain subject and then leaves the secretaries to manage their growing and often expansive bureaucracies. We're talking with Lindsay Chervinsky. Lindsay is the author of The Cabinet. George Washington and the creation of American and the creation of an American institution. We'll get to the way you wrote that book and how in just in just a second. But let me ask about this idea of uh, serving at the president's pleasure. I'm sure there are examples. I mean, we probably saw some some actual mathematical churn in the prior administration. Some examples of presidents whose uh, whose time in office has been high, highly churnable. Is the Trump administration sort of a standalone as far as the as far as the mathematics on that, or were there others that had similar churn? You mentioned Jackson before, mm-hmm. ignoring for a year some of his cabinet members. Have there been examples like Trump in the past? There have been, although I will say numerically, Trump did have more turnover than most presidents in their first term. Yeah. What we typically see is a turnover of people if a president is elected to a second term, which yeah. makes sense because eight years is a really long time to be in office. So that's pretty standard and pretty normal. And if a president, for example, has two secretaries of state, they're doing a pretty good job. Now, there are examples where there have been a lot of turnover. As I said, Jackson basically had three whole cabinets. He churned them over several times. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt had a ton of turnover in the Secretary of Navy position because he had been the Assistant Secretary of the Navy and Ah. loved the Navy and could not stop meddling to the point where he was dictating the length of cavalry spurs and (laughs) like details the president (laughs) details the president should not be focused on. He couldn't help himself because he was so passionate about the subject and the secretaries of the Navy couldn't handle it and they quit. So he went through six. Not ideal. Six. Okay. Secretaries of the Navy. Wow. Um, Some, you know, FDR obviously had a lot of turnover, but he didn't actually have a lot of turnover for each four years. He just was in office for such a long time. Got it. So there, there has been some, although the previous administration was unprecedented. It's What's Working in Washington. We're talking with Lindsay Chervinsky, author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. It's What's Working in Washington. We'll be right back. On What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how business in the region is keeping us competitive. If you are a D.C. insider and want to know what leaders in other industries are talking about, we give you that insight. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. We want perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. You can reach out through our website or through Twitter. 
We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We are excited to have as our guest today, Lindsay Chervinsky. Lindsay is the author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. We're not only talking about the cabinet and its history, but some other other uh, themes as well in the, in the growth of our nation. So um, the cabinet and George Washington, you obviously went to Mount Vernon and spent time researching this book. What was that process like? What, what were you doing there? So I was a fellow at the library at Mount Vernon, which is a phenomenal research experience. They have beautiful facility, too. beautiful facilities, incredible resources, really helpful staff. And just having time to dedicate to your work, often it's a matter of like avoiding distractions. So having a place to go do that is is so wonderful. The research process for me started with the question of where did the cabinet come from? And then when I realized there wasn't Uh, really a legal explanation, I started digging into Washington's experience and trying to understand what about his leadership experience, what about his background explained the formation of this institution. So, of course, there's no better place to do that than Mount Vernon. And then it was just a process of wading through thousands upon thousands upon thousands of letters, which is a wonderful problem to have. Were there other facilities that you visited as well, or was that really your, your, your spot? That was the primary one. I did some work at Monticello as well. Of course, Thomas Jefferson was the first Secretary of State. I did some work at the Massachusetts Historical Society since they have the papers of a lot of the other participants in the cabinet. And then, of course, the Library of Congress, which is the mecca of all American research because they have everything. Everything. Uh, Mount Vernon is a special place. Uh, My buddy was CEO for a while. We touched on that. And um, as I'll quote you saying the greatest backyard of all time because the, the, the CEO and his family or her family gets, a, gets, the, gets the home on the, on the property. A quick one, uh, he invited a bunch of us from our class down for a weekend, and after everybody left, we were able to walk around and go anywhere we wanted. It is truly one of the most magnificent pieces of property in the Washington area, maybe in our nation. It is, and as a fellow, you get the same privileges. You get you 24 hours. Jealous. <laughs> so while we don't generally, you know, publicize this, we would often sometimes have wine on the back piazza of the of the estate, which, as you said, the view is unparalleled. And they've done such a good job of preserving it, both yeah. the land on that side of the river, but also across, because yeah. it would ruin it if you were looking at something like a power plant. It would totally distract from the historical preservation. I think it wasn't a power plant. It was gonna, they were going to go in. It was a it was a sewage plant was going to be built there, as I recall. There anyway, are, they bought yeah, the, yeah, they've done a ton. Of, there have been a, several different threats at yeah. various different moments, all of which would totally ruin the view. Yeah. So going for uh, s- some thoughts on cabinets after our founding president, I'm a big fan of William Seward. He went to my college alma mater, and I think of him as almost a shadow president. And the movie Lincoln, I think, gave that that relationship a lot of probably Hollywood Hollywoodized are there other people that you've come across in your study and in your analysis that have that kind of impact as it seemed William Seward did with Lincoln? Yeah, there have been a few. So another really important secretary of state, and I think one of the best cabinet secretary names in U.S. history was Hamilton Fish. He was the secretary of state under Grant. Now, Grant, of course, really did not need any assistance with military matters. And yeah. with domestic issues, he was pretty experienced, but he didn't have any diplomatic experience. He didn't have any foreign policy gravitas. 
and Fish did. And so he was a really essential player in that cabinet, especially at a time when Great Britain and the United States were sort of renegotiating what their relationship was going to look like and what was going to be the role of the Western Hemisphere. And so Fish was a huge player. Uh, The other one that I would point out, who I think gets uh, short shrift, is John Quincy Adams. He was a Secretary of State under James Monroe. Now, Monroe had, you know, basically every position one could ever hope to have before becoming president. He himself had been Secretary of State. He had been a diplomat all over the world. He had been, you know, he was a very experienced president. But he wasn't necessarily a brilliant thinker. And John Quincy Adams was a brilliant thinker. And I think he was probably one of the best secretaries of state in U.S. history. I credit him with the creation of the Monroe Doctrine, even though the president's name was applied to it. I really think it's the John Quincy Adams Doctrine. Wow. Um, And that is the hill I will die on. Yeah. Uh, So he was an important figure. Well, history is written by the victors, as they say. So it's going to be named after the... So as I recall, George W. Bush had not been to Europe before he became president. I think that was one of the sort of the attacks on him, or at least he certainly didn't present himself as being very worldly. There's an example, and I'm not going political here, but there's an example to me for your comments of, and maybe this is an example with President Grant, with Ulysses Grant, where the cabinet is a way to shore up the lack of experience that the president has. Is that quite typical that presidents are looking for that kind of experience? The good ones are. The good ones. There you go. So, you know, Washington and he, Washington established this precedent. He, of course, was really unparalleled in his stature when he came into office. But he had only been to Barbados once as a teenager. He had never been to Europe. He didn't speak French, which was the language of diplomacy. Mm-hmm. He didn't have some of these sort of intricate financial ideas about how the economy should be saved. And so he intentionally selected secretaries with different expertise and knowledge than his own. And he was not afraid to ask for their input and to ask for their help. And the very best presidents have replicated that process, knowing that they will be a better leader if they ask for help from smart people. And it's only the ones that think they know best and think that they have all the answers that tend to get into trouble. Well, let's go there. Um, I think whatever, again, whatever letter is on your sweater, D or R or independent uh, in, in the American political arena, it looked like that Barack Obama, who was a relatively inexperienced political figure when he won the presidency, reached out to Hillary Clinton for her role as Secretary of State. Whatever you think of her personally, she definitely had experience in that. Um, it seems like the Trump administration often did not go there. The people that they appointed did not have the kind of, I wouldn't say gravitas, but the resume did seem kind of thin compared to other presidents. Is it your sense... Well, let's go there. What What is your sense of, of why? President Trump had very different qualifications that he was looking for from yep. his cabinet secretaries. Typically, not typically, but generally, presidents look for, again, that, that very diverse qualifications, diverse experience. They're looking for racial, gender, and religious diversity to ensure that the different experiences of the American life are represented They're usually looking for a mix of people they either have previous relationships with, but also some newcomers that they can hopefully build some good ties with. President Trump seemed to really value people with ties in the business industry, especially businesses that he preferred. He had put a premium on personal loyalty in a way that I think a lot of other presidents have not. 
And he was not afraid to flout some of the more standard conventions about scandal. Generally, presidents try and avoid cabinet scandal for obvious reasons. It's a distraction. It undermines their administration. Trump didn't seem to have that same concern and often courted the scandal himself, sometimes by, you know, firing people on Twitter. That is a fantastically politically sensitive way of reflecting. (laughs) So let's go to the current administration with President Biden. It looks like President Biden, I shouldn't say looks, it's clear, used DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, as an absolute cornerstone of who he reached out to and who he has appointed. Um, It seems like that's going to be his signature element going through all four years or eight if he gets. That seems to be, in my personal opinion, the strength of where the cabinet's going to go. I hope you agree that that, when it's been reflected like that, has has been the strength of the cabinet. I do, and I think it's really important to emphasize this is not a you know human resources optics box that right. someone is trying to check. Studies have shown that presidents who have diverse advisors or you know business leaders or you know anyone you name it, if they can surround themselves with diverse people, they make better choices. They are less likely to get stuck in groupthink. They're better able to come up with creative solutions. You know, I think of the example of Deb Holland, who's the Secretary of the Interior, yeah. who oversees the United States relationship with Native American nations. And she's the first person that has firsthand experience with what that's like. What sort of, you know, credentials and information can she bring that other people haven't? So I think it's really important. It's really smart. The United States is so big and so diverse and so different that you have to have those different people in order to understand all of the walks of the American life. We did a study at the SBA when I worked there that uh, publicly traded companies with diverse boards of directors, their stock outperformed companies that Mm -hmm. did not. So the evidence is right there in front of you from an economic standpoint. So let's go to the future. Um, And again, we're talking with Lindsay Chervinsky. She's the author of The Cabinet, George Washington, and and the Creation of an American Institution. Wave the magic wand of what you think the cabinet will be like 20, 30, 40 years from now, more complex, fewer people? Where do we go? I think we're likely to see the cabinet break down into a series of almost sub-cabinets to have more of a national security cabinet, to have maybe a climate cabinet that would bring together people from both domestic and foreign policy, things like that. Because I think, you know, a big group is hard to work with um, on a day-to-day basis. So I think smaller sub-cabinets is probably the likely outcome. I, I think that's exactly spot on. Well, you would know. You're the expert. But I Well, but I, historians, I historians are terrible future predictors. So uh, if I'm right, I will be shocked. Well, let's go to our final question. We always ask our guests uh, sort of a if you, ruled the wor- if you ruled the world moment. If you were in charge of everything, what's a thing you would stop? What's a thing that you would create and make happen? I would stop climate change. It seems to be the challenge that is – you know, so pressing, but also I don't know what we're going to do about it because the world as a whole seems to be unable to come up with a solution. And the thing that I would create, I'm a huge dog lover, so I would create a loving home for all dogs so they are not in shelters. Wow. That's that's two very, very unique answers. Lindsay Trevinsky, way to go. You really brought it the last few seconds and have all the time together. Lindsay Trevinsky was our guest today here on What's Working in Washington. She's the author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, just out in paperback. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network. 
and streaming as a podcast.